curious about property and architecture? I'm Max DeRose from DeRose Sart Architects, and in this series of podcast episodes, I am speaking to property developers, land agents, and estate agents. We're going to be focusing on residential property and speaking to different professionals involved in the property development process. We will discuss how the property industry has changed over the last few years and what we can expect in the coming years. De Rose Saar is an architecture and design practice in Notting Hill, London. We have built a reputation for designing imaginative and well-considered schemes spanning the residential, retail and community sectors. At the centre of what we do is a belief that quality design adds value to property. Today I'm joined by Philippa Stockley, writer, award-winning journalist, novelist, art historian and painter. Welcome to the podcast, Philippa. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks, Max. So you're a freelance journalist and you write a lot for the Evening Standard. Indeed, that's how we met. However, as I have since come to realise, your considerable creativity and knowledge applies to many things. I've alluded to some of them in your description, but would it be right to say that storytelling is a thread that runs across your many interests? And that's such an interesting thing to say, and I think storytelling probably runs across any creative person's interest, doesn't it? So, mm. And when you say that, and I know we're talking about architecture already, you could see there's a storytelling element in all forms of architecture and the history of architecture and right across the world and in a timeline too. Yeah. And it's only those elements of telling a story, of having meaning, of joining up dots that make anything worth interesting, whether it is a story, a novel, a mystery, I quite like doing that sort of thing, or whether it's a building or a set of buildings or a city. So, mm. yes, storytelling has to run through everything doesn't it i think what's interesting is people who are able to bring things that are ultimately quite static to life through stories whether they are paintings or or architecture i always find it more interesting when you know a little bit some of the story behind those things and whether in your novel or in your articles i think your writing brings architecture to life indeed i've read your new book black lily and I love the evocative descriptions of 17th century London. So I say this just to set the context. I am a bit worried, working as an architect, that we're adopting increasingly visual mindset. In my business, dominated by diagrams and glossy images, where meaning is secondary to move on from the first point. I think that meaning is more important than ever to make sense of this kind of shallow or fast-moving world. Do you think we can strive without meaning? Discuss. Difficult question, maybe. Well, I was thinking as you were talking, I hadn't perhaps answered the storytelling all that well. At the same time, the idea of meaning and storytelling is so completely linked. And so all that I was thinking as you were going on was that humans desperately, all of us, want meaning, need meaning. And, you know, meaning, and therefore meaning comes into all, form, all forms, doesn't it? So in a story, you want a beginning and a middle and an end, and you want satisfaction, you want a sense of moral justice or whatever it is you might want to have a core of morality something like that in a building or in a home or in a domicile you want certain things too not mm. only do you want an aesthetic meaning you want a, a form of proportion that you understand but you want meaning in the the building itself whether it's a cave you know you've got to have a roof and you've got to have mm. comfort and you've got to have warmth but i do think you know all of us have an incredible capability to understand things and to feel comforted by things yeah. so all those things that you and i understand and, and are interested in tactility and comfort and visual aesthetics and proper use and function come together into what we would consider meaning and that would be in an architectural sense yes but meaning in a, a a written sense 
would have similar building blocks mm. of comfort and, and understanding and appreciation. And within a certain, whether one was Western or Eastern, there would be other kind of group, groups of, of ideas that would go into that as well. So, I mean, meaning, without meaning, we're, we're standing on an ice floe floating around in the North Pole. I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think meaning adds so much richness to things. But I suppose I'm worried that we're moving towards a shallower world where I suppose, you know, social media and, and particularly Instagram is so about the image. And right instantaneous. Instantaneous gratification in a way. And we don't take the time to, I mean, even I have children and I struggle to get them to read, you know, to, we, we take less time, it feels, to understand and get behind the stories of things. I see it in architecture in some of the ways that architects present their buildings. Yes. There's less focus on how they arrived at a, at a design or a proposal. Um, well, can I stop? I mean, you're interviewing me, but for the, the people like me who don't know how architects, or I know little, but some people don't know how architects work. Yeah. So when you say that, what does that mean? Does that mean the drawings are very glib or the, or the buildings themselves are very, very simple? What do you mean? Well, so I suppose I'm speaking at kind of design stage, so... I'm thinking maybe at a presentation where you haven't got the final building. I think there's two stages. One, when you're doing your proposal and it's still essentially a design on paper. And then there's the stage where it's been built. And I I think it's very important at the design stage that you're relating your design back to either the people you're presenting to and trying to make a connection with their experience in some way or you're making connections to the local area that your building will be situated in, whether it's, you know, a connection to the materiality or... But I think it goes a little bit beyond that. And I really enjoy schemes where there's a narrative. So they've picked up on on a point of interest and then they've used that to influence the idea. And so it becomes a little bit more poetic, I think. But I mean, what you're hitting on is, is both interesting and worrying in an artistic sense. For example, in terms of... Well, in all art... The mass of people or humanity or us, we follow behind artists. So yeah. artists set the pace, they set the pace, whether it's visual arts, they particularly do in literature. So, you know, and, and in perhaps comic books, you can think of comic books of the 50s where you had geodesic domes, that type of thing, mm. futuristic buildings, great pointy high mm. buildings, Blade Runner, take a film. Those things 30, 20, 30 years later tend to f- filter down into general life. Mm-hmm. So therefore there is a moral duty, perhaps you could say, of, of practical artists architects mm-hmm. to not jump too fast to those stages because the people following behind who've got to inhabit the buildings do need the meaning do need the comfort of comprehension and understanding of their environment that you're describing yes. and I think that's very that is to do with how architecture is taught in schools yeah. that there cannot be a sort of almighty we'll just do it our way it has to come back at every point to the people who are going to inhabit the buildings Yes, that's true. But I don't think architects do enough of that. Because Will you teach? It, oh, don't you? I, I don't teach at the moment. But I thought I needed to build a lot before even having the confidence to teach. So, But I think, I don't know, with architects, there is a, a kind of slightly, not arrogance, but that, you know, dealing with the consumer or the home buyer, especially in residential architecture, is a bit below them, which I think is ironic, really, because... Those are the people, the audience, who ultimately they're designing for. When I do interviews, as you know, I do, and I realise, because I do write often for The Standard, and I write these stories 
mm. called My Homes, yes. where I go into a home. And we talk about architecture from that point of view, how it was built, what they found out in the process, how they found their architect, and their overall experience. And yeah. what I have found, humblingly in many ways, is that architects who build houses, small-scale houses, get incredibly involved with the owners. And the owners really enjoy that, and it really enriches their understanding of where they're living. Mm. And often as architects grow, as you say, they grow away from that because it's a, a small profit thing to mm. make a house and they go into bigger and bigger and we can understand that because architects are in business too mm. and then they get more and more by layers of sort of bureaucracy cut off from the people that they're going to be working for especially if they're flats yeah but when you have considerate architects like you and again i've used the word morality which comes into all forms of art where you think and you think you have to build a lot before you could go on to teach mm. for example you have created for yourself a need at some point to give something back. And so is anyone who thinks in that way. Mm. So anyone who has that considerate view of building or the, the environment or the civic environment has at some point to attempt to give back, I think. Yes. And there will always be some imperialistic people who probably won't. And they're the people perhaps you're somehow alluding to, you yeah. know, ones who for them it is a kind of a game almost, at yeah. a very high level and people don't much matter. It, and they're going to be there in any any walk of life, politics, art. Yeah, it becomes almost an intellectual exercise where yes. you're trying to outdo your peers in a way. So I'm, I think as an architect, most architects do want to give back, but I, I am less interested, I suppose, less motivated in, in teaching other architects. I feel one of the things that annoys me or I struggle with is that architecture is, is not accessible to everybody. So in our practice, I mean, there's we're just exploring ways in which we can try and make that happen, whether it's at one point we're thinking, do we take a market stand on a Saturday morning and, you know, instead of on Portobello Market, instead of uh, selling goods, we just sell our, people can drop in and we'll answer questions for that level. But I do think there is something interesting at the moment that, uh, that I've been thinking about is that architects, you were, you were talking about how architects as they become in a way more successful, they become more removed from the people they're designing for. Or may do, yes. Yeah, may do. I feel that with the internet and with connectivity, I think I'm seeing it across other industries. I I'm not sure if I'm right in this, but the middleman is being cut out. And I feel that architects are having to deal with, or especially with home owners, are having to deal more directly or will have to deal more directly with the consumer. And, you know, whether it's through some of the sites or the way people procure their houses, I feel the internet and software is getting rid of the middleman. By middleman, well, I would say middle person, because uh, I'm a Galatea. Sorry. Do you mean builders and, and craftspeople? And I think developers, oh. so the, the ones procuring the architects. I'm just seeing this on a, you know, recently we've been talking to house this website where people can go online and they can plan their project and then they're put directly in touch with architects. Some architects, are, their whole business model is based around house. In a way, it's, it's almost like a, a search engine for procuring architects. Yes. And they're you know, deriving quite a lot of, of projects from that model and dealing with, the, I think they, they, there's a much closer connection to the consumer and I wouldn't be surprised in the same way that something stupid like ordering a taxi 
it's much more immediate. You talk to the driver yes. before you have to go through, you I, know, central I office. I mean, I think that's, that is really interesting. It seems to me there's such a huge subject here. And one of the things, and I'm going to come back to what you're saying. I, I live in a really old house. I live in a Georgian house mm-hmm. built with bricks and mortar, built by hand, built with timber, labor intensive, every part of it. Almost no machines, you know, hand tools. And what you're describing is we're on a, a tipping point almost, it seems to me, between a world of instant not gratification, that's too easy, instant access things. So in construction, we're seeing modern methods of construction mm-hmm. and off-site construction, and you can almost ring up, and or not ring up, you would click a button and you could order your house through house or through a taxi site. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, and we're seeing it with this rise against plastics and so on, which I'm extremely behind because right. I'm worried about world resources. We know sand is running out, we know cement and concrete is going to be running out if we're not careful. Yeah. Rising up on the other side in tandem with that instant gratification form of building, which is rather cool and impersonal, is a renewal of interest in bricks and lime mortar and mm. renewable timber less stone because it isn't really renewable but bricks and timber type buildings coming up again which i'm seeing when i'm going around houses and i'm pleased to see in small developments too much more use again of brick which i don't think is a fad no. i think it is in response to that so there is this counter movement where the middle people the developers the craftspeople, all those people and uh, the builders are coming back in again and yeah i hope Yes, because I, I don't think it's sustainable that press a button get a house. No, no, no. You're right. You're absolutely right. But I, I suppose I was. I think that that those bits that there is still a discord in that. I think software and technology is making us closer, quicker access. But I think that for now it, it's existing in the design process. But um, I think you're totally right. We haven't quite got you know 24 hours later your your Thank house God. arrives. But I think we are going to move. We're, we're, we're moving slowly in that direction. Are you sure? I think we are. Whether And so I think what will be interesting is, without having thought about this too hard, I think what would be interesting is it won't be individually hand-built. I think it will be built in a factory, I, I, I'm guessing here. But I think it will be wonderful materials, so well, lime and clay. And, I mean, that would be extraordinary. That would be extraordinary, but yeah. that is quite a leap of imagination, I think, to yeah. think of the technical. I mean, you know, I've been to the, years ago, certainly I went to the more progressive modern method factories in Belgium. Okay. Where things are built, you know, panel built and down to the last millimetre. Yeah. But you think, what are the materials they're using? And I think, again, you know, I'm a conservationist, I have to admit this, you, you know. When you, we talked about earlier about meaning and narrative, Mm. And you talk about when I think what is beauty or what is meaning in a building, and you think, why do we find the Acropolis beautiful or meaningful? Mm. Part of the reason is because it's lasted for 2,000 years, or someone put me right, how many Mm. thousand years it's lasted. I think that's part of the meaning which is embedded in beauty to us, because we are so finite. We find longevity of beauty interesting. And I think if we go back to using... And so what you say is interesting about if we can use those in the factory. If we go back to using the small building blocks, handmade, and employ the billions of extra people on the planet building, because what are they going to be doing? Mm. But somehow doing it in factories, perhaps with more, I don't know, more organisation, we will create products and houses that are going to last for hundreds of years, which is incredibly important as resources become finite, as the population Mm. explodes. I mean, otherwise, how are we going to live 
I, I agree. It's a, it's a very difficult challenge. There's so many things to explore. I, I think, so just going back to the meaning thing, I think, you know, I find it so interesting. We work a lot in refurbished existing houses. And when you uncover something with a mark and you, you see the mark of a tool or you see someone scrawled something, I think it adds l- so much character to that house and patina the um, expression of someone or previous occupant living in the building is so difficult to replicate that I think you have to treat it with a lot of care because you can lose it very quickly and then once it's gone, it's gone. I'm talking maybe in the refurbishment process. understand. And so I think those are the things that give a place or a, a home a meaning or a character which I think is very difficult to replicate if you're if it arrives on the back of a lorry or on the pallet. Yes. Uh, and uh, but I don't know whether labour, hand labour, is is necessarily where we're going to end up. I think we will just the process of building will change, and we'll still need human interaction. Will come in different ways. I think it will become more managers rather than actual providing the physical uh, power. And is is my hunch. I think there's still a long way to go. Well, I don't know. I think that could be problematic in terms of the population and what they're going to be doing while these beautiful buildings are being erected without their assistance, but maybe Mm. they can... But what you say is fascinating, because I remember when I interviewed you long ago, the first time, I think I came to your house, your and Claire's house. Yes. And we were talking about surfaces and finishing, and uh, Claire told me that, or you said, that uh, you loved old uh, marble-topped uh, tables in bars mm. in Portugal, I think, because right. they were chipped and marked, yeah. and they would have wine stains, and you found that beautiful. Mm. And therefore, using marble on a kitchen surface, which people are afraid of because of the marks, you said, well, it doesn't matter because part of its beauty is the enhancement through time and the creation of patina, which I agree with so much that I could plug my forthcoming book which is about old London houses, uh, (laughs) and it's about pattern and paint in old houses. Oh, yes. But that humanity of touch, I think, is important. But is it not possible, Max, you know, yeah, that we could put the two things, people have houses built in, you know, factories somehow, which obviously they're involved in. Mm. But then you add things, you know, craftspeople, craftsmanship has to be added into them as well. I think so. I saw your book, actually. I I wasn't sure whether... That was a new book or an It's old... one that's coming out. And, I, you know, it's, a, it's non-fiction. It is about old London houses. Yeah. And just on that, not to plug the book, which I have, but... You should so plug the book. So what fascinates me about them is that they're, the ones I'm seeing are, are mainly Georgian. Okay. Some are a little later, early 19th century. Yeah. So the oldest ones are almost 300 years old. And the rest are sort of just chickens at 200 years old. Right. And they still have the timber and the bricks and the stuff, all of them shaped by hand. And in fact, you know, my own house is one of those, even it's a cheap little one. Mm-hmm. So it still has little ste- steps, which are 200 years old, and they're all shaped by hand. I see. So yeah. I think the handworking is important. I mean, I look at everything in my house every day, and I can see where hand tools have worked. And to me, which isn't everybody's view, that is incredibly important to my uh, appreciation and response to beauty, how I would even define beauty. Uh, so I'd like to challenge you on that one because I think it's funny. I, 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 Georgian architecture for me, I think resonates. I mean, we're interviewing you in your lovely home, and, and it has so much character. I have to jump in and say this is a number four house 
It's the most rubbishy Georgian house you could possibly hope for. But anyway, <laughs> go on. But I think that we we associate. So just to touch on, I think the the what's lovely about traditional architecture, whether it's Georgian, is the care and the quality that comes through and and stands the test of time. And I think we associate at this point that anything is factory made with poor quality, possibly whether it's made abroad or it arrives, you're not you you're disassociated from the way it's made, and you don't. Un- as a consumer, as a user. But I do think that that doesn't mean that anything not made by hand is not quality because I think we will move. So in in terms of craftsmanship, I think we will move towards, I suppose, digital ways of fabrication. But they will allow you to be very detailed and to achieve a quality in that before, when you talked about factory-made things, it had to be set up in one way where you could do one and then you had to roll out the same one. And if you had to, you couldn't do small numbers. But I think now with with the, adv- the, the, the progress made in, in digital fabrication, every one can be different. And so I think you can get in into the thing that you're fabricating, whether it's a stone worktop or a piece of joinery, you will be able to get the one that comes out in at 9am will be different to the one that comes out at 10am. Yes, I agree with that. You're, so you're talking sort of fast response thing, just as you can uh, print books to order, if we brought yeah. it back to that, you could print off a small number of and you would print, wouldn't you, um, things to order. Yeah. I mean, my only principal concern with all of those is that they're made with with sustainable materials. Yes. So that we have factories using making high quality, using ceramic rather than plastic or using timber rather than mm. whatever it would be, which I think is also possible, isn't it? So yeah. And but that is to do with Max. It had, like everything else, it's to do with the aspiration or the organisation at the top. It's top down, isn't it? So from the quality of the overall architecture, no Georgian house is beautiful without someone who drew a beautiful design. Yes. Whether it was a master builder, yeah. or whether in the case of some houses in Spitalfields, it was actually Hawksmoor who designed the house next to the church, yeah. which rather set the bar in the street for the other builders. But, you know, whoever is doing the overall design, and then it's also down to the money people. So whoever orders, do we use cheap crap or do we use the best possible Mm. whatever? Well, hopefully, I I think you're totally right. So um, the investment is required in order to make it... uh, um, And the will. And the will. Yeah. I suppose the will in the investment. Quite often we have these conversations in our design process whereby you just get the feeling that even if we were to design something beautiful, the will to invest is just not there. But I hope that, you know, the discussions that we're having today and and what we're trying to, I suppose, champion is that quality and craft and attention to detail and has a value, uh, whether it's a value in the, the quality of life, it just makes your life more enjoyable, or for a developer, it makes what he's producing more valuable. And he could sell it at a higher price. I'm hoping that design will be recognised like that. I think it has started to... I'm sure it is. Has started to be designed. I'm sure. And historically, you know, again, to say that, you know, that if you take um, a building by if, if William Morris, did he actually design any buildings or was he just in the interiors? Mm, but, you know, a famous architect yeah. or a well-made building is going to sell on for more. And it's going to last for hundreds of years. So there's got to be, there is value implicit in good design and there is value yeah. clearly implicit. And I think that, you know, you could call it embedded value. I mean, one would call it embedded value. 
Yeah. If that's understood at the beginning, properly understood by investors, they will get a better return over a longer time. Yes. I think people do understand that. They want to fight against it, and there will be people who argue against it. But I think the serious money is on high quality and uh, well-made, attention to detail, yeah. longevity. Oh, uh, well. Or is that just my wishful thinking? I think enlightened people, but I think there's still a drive. So just in residential property, I think there's still investment is the number one priority quality falls behind which that. Which is wrong, which I is think it's, stupid. Yeah. Can I put in a plea? Can I put in one plea to all builders working in bricks? This is my favourite thing. In the past, you know, brick buildings could be demolished and rebuilt. Yeah. And they could be done really quite easily because they had lime mortar. So you could knock off the lime mortar and save probably 90% of the bricks and the rest could go into clinker and stuff to mix into new bricks. Now, if you have cement mortar, concrete mortar, whatever you want to call it, you can't clean it off bricks easily and bricks go into landfill. Yes. It's unsustainable. Absolutely. You're right. Can architects, my question would be, small builders can use lime, but can bigger buildings still use lime under building regulations? Oh, gosh. Now, there's one. That's a difficult one. Yeah, I think you can. I mean, it depends on what kind of scale and, you know, I think one of the nice things about lime is um, you don't have to have movement joints. But it essentially, it still, I think, requires it to be laid by hand yes. and less yes, people. Yes, and that's my side. But all I'm trying to say is it's through a way of building, whatever you describe, whether it's factory-made or made bit by bit by people, mm. where obsolescence is not built into it, which has been more or less happening since the 60s with buildings and with things. Can we start to think quite fast about building obsolescence out of things again? Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. In, in terms of materiality, there's a lot of, I think, young designers who are either they're using scrap materials, materials yes. that our generation, my generation would have just thought of as a byproduct of something else we wouldn't have even thought about using Such it. Such as? So, so I was looking at the work of a designer. So it's not an architect, a design, furniture designer. She's using leftover strands from jeans Fantastic. to make furniture, which she mixes up. Uh, yes, I'm not quite sure. So, yeah. uh, another one was using uh, the dust from cutting stone to make new materials. Another piece of furniture I was reading about... Um, Rice. We produce so much rice, and and we get through so much rice in throughout the world. The husks yes. that rice comes in. What it, it's one of the most abundant materials we have, and this person had developed a way of using that. So very I think those things. Yes. There is a very exciting. I mean, they're small scale, but they're the beginning of a thinking yeah. process that could feed into much larger scale. Yes, I probably. think that's right, and I think we have to be thinking whether it's when our phones, you know, become too old. We can turn them into bricks. Well, I don't know. We take them apart, that kind of thing. You know, what is their life? Yeah, there has to be. You're absolutely... I think everything, yes. Yeah, we have to move that towards that way. Yes, we have to. And fast, don't you think? So builders, you know, how many times have I said moral during this talk? Builders and architects and teachers of those things all have, should have an obligation, that's perhaps a better word, an obligation to humanity to think about those questions. Throughout every aspect I think of the process. So. I mean, that would be my wish. I'm not seeing it enough. Like you say, I see it in young architects. Yes. Aspirational, passionate, 
They're still small. They're not making a lot of money. They're really caring about the people they're working with, mm -hmm. and they are worried about the future, their children and other people's children. Yes. And the buildings they're going to live in and how they're going to have enough to make them. And I would love to see everyone start thinking about that on a bigger scale, cranking that up. Yeah, I think you know, that's a, a very interesting topic, and and I hope that um, architects are doing enough. I don't think they are just yet, but there is a lot of talk that, especially in in the RIBA and and the architects community, architectural community, about uh, climate change reaching a, a crisis point, and we have to do more. I think there was a a declaration made. Interestingly, by Sterling, seven. It was started by. It's called the Architects' Declaration. It was started by seven Sterling-nominated architects. When was that? I think I it was in the last that. three, four months. Good but idea. usually, those big practices are a bit last to the table. But the danger is, it's all PR, and no one's actually doing anything about it. And I think the it would be. It's going to be very interesting to see who really puts this stuff into motion and changes their a daily practice. Well, I have to say, on something like that, you have got to have law. It is much like asking uh, food manufacturers to reduce mm. sugar uh, when they make sweets. You know, why would they do it? Yeah. But if you take a case, for example, the thing that springs to mind is after the Great Fire of London, 1666, finally, you know, it was realised that overhanging timber buildings are charming. There they were, right. were going yeah. to catch fire. And so you have the new rule, the architectural rule, you know, as obviously you know yeah. uh, about the re recessing all windows four inches, wasn't it, or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. And obviously, obviously stone-faced, but definitely recessed to impede fire. That has to be a law. Why would builders do it? It wasn't convenient. It wasn't how they did things. Why would they do it? You yeah. have to have someone with brains somewhere saying, no, we are going to start conserving, saving, changing, not doing mm. this in this way. We are going to do it that way. I don't think it's fair to ask builders or architects to take the responsibility for it. And I also think that's a, a fault of recent governments in this country, certainly, where our government has passed the buck to manufacturers and said, you do it, you sort it out, as I say, with mm. food, or it's your problem, you come to an agreement among yourselves. Why should they? No, what you're are right. governments yeah. for? Well, there was, it was looking quite optimistic with the Paris Agreement and all of that. Yes. I think we've rode back slightly, I don't know. But they didn't say yes, that's a good steer yeah. from Yes, that's true. But I think things, maybe something, refurbishment of buildings. I know that a lot of people would like VAT to be removed. If we, from, Very good idea. Uh, which I think would be a really good idea to encourage people to not just but not... You know, how much out. time have we got? How big is a box? How, how can we get on to the number of houses being built? And who's going to build those? But do you not think... So coming back to... I think this may be linked, I think, to the fact that all our building stock at the moment is pretty much hand-built. If we were to say to clients, if I was able to say to a client, we're going to refurbish your home, you can move out for four weeks, yes, and in four weeks it will be ready. And so therefore I would have something made in a factory, they would move out, everything comes on the back of a lorry, gets put back in, and off we go. I think we've got a shot then at improving our building stock because at the moment i just don't think we can't square the circle we need to make all our buildings more energy efficient and um we need more houses but we're just not doing those things quick enough to meet the the climate change concerns so, so you're saying it is which sounds like a fantastic idea you're saying 
uh, or you and I are both saying, that alongside probably uh, lots more stringent rules for building more houses faster and using local authority land and yeah. releasing land and stop being so greedy and get on with it, the things that we think need doing. But we probably have to relax the planning rules a bit. Relaxing planning rules and yeah. getting the government behind building the hundreds of thousands of homes that we need. You're also saying to refurb existing stock, which is energy efficient, so maintaining the sort of emballage, the brick envelope, and putting a factory built thing inside that something like up that to fit for purpose. And, yeah. Well, I mean, that's a sensational idea. But I mean, I, I don't know how to do that yet. Well, but... then, Max, you're talking about <laughs> teaching, and this is your project. But if I think part of the problem is that it's actually very painful to go through the refurbishment for the people who live in there, and it's expensive. And it takes a long time, and so people just don't want to do it. Well, you say they would rather throw it away like a plastic bag and just have a brand new one. Well, almost. And it's only so, when that 10p tax comes in. So that's that, a mentality, isn't it? It's a mentality, and a, yes, 10p tax. It's down to government. Yeah, so I think that and that's teaching. been incredible, that 10p plastic bag tax. Well, that uh, should be £10, but don't get me started. But what you're saying is so interesting. Are the people doing that? Are the people well so I think I mean uh, I see the house builders moving towards a modular building and and I think that the concern is you know we talked about it earlier at the moment modular building hasn't got a great reputation and uh, it's associated with kind of slightly shallow and cheap construction methods but I'm sure that I feel positive that with a bit more research you know and maybe a bit more focus on quality materials some kind of solution could be found. But that's new build. I think it's 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 fairly yes. easy on new build. I think it's very difficult on refurbishment because every building is slightly different. So yes. it might not be that literally it's a your home arrives on the back of a lorry, but it might be that a certain it's a kit of parts and it needs to slot in or work with what's already there. I mean that I think would be something very interesting, but I'm not sure I think it will take a long time to 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 develop that. Maybe it's something Worth looking into, I'm That's sure it is. The whole thing has got to be part of an overall solution, hasn't yeah. it? Lots of different intelligence That's right. That's true. Lots of different ways. Yeah. But maybe I can bring that back to... It's interesting because often you read about... So we just bring it back to the homeowner and consumer. So often Georgian properties seem to top... Or traditional properties seem to top kind of what pe- the poles of what people aspire to in a home. And I'm curious as to why, I often think, why is that? Is that a reflection on modern architecture because it's just not ticking people's boxes? Or are we just a very nostalgic society in the UK and in England? Do you think, but I wonder whether it's to do with meaning and it is about having a distinctive home. I'm not sure. Well, there are a lot of questions there. And also, just to think about that, there are a great many forms of, principally I think we're talking about Georgian and perhaps Victorian Mm. to a degree Edwardian properties, housing stock. In Georgian a great deal of the really poor ones such as this one, I mentioned they're they're built in numbers, number four is the lowest, really knocked up by a half blind drunk builder on his afternoon off and amazingly this one has stood 200 years but it's very rare. Generally in Georgian it's slightly bigger properties which stay. So I think there you've got nostalgia, genuine love of beauty and proportion. They have wonderful light, they That's have nice true. sizes, they have elegance because they are often the larger properties. Mm. More interesting perhaps or more open for debate is the endless sort of Victorian terraces of smaller, you know, what became called two up 
too down. Mm. Some of which until very recently were left as we know abandoned and people were buying more or less streets for a pound or buildings mm. for a pound. Because there they were, you could say meaner, the proportions weren't so good, the light wasn't so good, even though they were fairly solid and they were quite warm. And, but mm. they were quite basic little brick block houses. They didn't have very good amenities. They had small yards and a bog out the back. Right, yeah, yeah. But now, as you and I both know, people are buying those and redoing them up. So, you know, that you've got a complex... How do we answer that question? Are they buying them again because they fall in love with them? Because they're cheap? Because there's nothing else for them to buy? All of these are potential answers to this. Yeah. You know, what? why... the So the bigger Georgian ones or the pretty ones, if people can afford them, we can see why. Because they are... Beautiful places. They are to beautiful. Live in. They yeah. do have grace. We can use that word here. In the smaller ones, people must have a home. Mm-hmm. They are desperate to afford a home. And a small square brick house that may not have seemed attractive in the past, perhaps suddenly when there's nothing else on offer, its it delights become. become, you know, our scale of if you're hungry, a piece of bread suddenly becomes interesting. Yeah. So, so maybe it's a reflection of the house building. We don't have, yes, I mean, I think they're lovely. The you know, I think if you can get a small brick house with it with timber floors where you're not inhaling artificial substances, because I think natural building materials not only look better to the eye, but they are definitely, they feel better and they breathe better. Yes. So I think those are healthy environments, but a modern building may have more grace or more charm. But mm. yes, we do need to build more. So if your choice is renting a really shitty little flat or mm. managing to buy a small two up, two down, and refurbishing it yourself. Most people, I think, would go for the house, and yes. which argues that we should be building a hell of a lot more affordable, small houses for people. Brick houses. So, brick houses, I mean, I, I, at this point, I would say almost any houses, but I would argue strongly for brick, yes. Mm. Renewable brick. Small scale, so yes, they could be built with lime. And timber, renewable, so that it's not just your children or my children or anyone else's children. It's their grandchildren and their grandchildren and their grandchildren, because otherwise they are not going to have a planet to live on, let alone a house to live in. Yes, I think you've raised so many good points. But it would mean we desperately need to build more, but then everyone needs to relax a little bit about what goes up around there. Because I don't know, I'm from originally from Belgium, and there's a lot more that gets built out there than I think over here. And, you know, I see trying to get something through planning is tough in this country, uh, especially in, yes. in, in the UK. So I don't know if, if people, I still haven't made up my mind if people are resistant about planning because they're worried about the people who are doing the planning and submitting the planning because developers haven't got a great reputation or they're worried about the quality of the stuff that's being built around them, or they're just anti-change. I'm not quite sure. That's what I have to say, isn't it? They're, they're anti all sorts of things. But I mean, if you think historically of some of the appalling things, the appalling thrown-up skyscrapers that went up, you know, after the war, yeah. and then people see those, and then they become centres for kind of, you know, um, criminality and stuff, and, and waste tipped all over the place and True. neglect then there would be a genuine reason to call that a sort of fear. Of, are we going to get one of those? And curiously, I think, you know, unfortunately, our illustrious new Prime Minister to be sworn in this, this very afternoon. Historic day. Yes, Boris Johnson, who put up so many skyscrapers, some of which are still in, or tall mm. buildings, still, um, still underway. When he was mayor, he signed those off. <laughs> I still don't think that for domestic, that high-rise, high super high-rise is the way. And that with a proper volumetric control, if you go to four floors or six floors, yeah. perhaps, 
you know, you can get an amazing number of really delightful kind of duplex type or, or, or what single level apartments and get a huge number of people onto much more appealing human scale. I mean, that would be my view. Mm. People are afraid of things that frighten them. They're mm -hmm. not afraid of small, nicely built houses with kind of yards and gardens and front doors and people they can talk to. You know, show me someone who's afraid of a small house with a garden going up. Yes, you're right. But whether we have enough, I think we need to be getting more density. Density, but than... you can do it, as you know, with the lower rise. I, I mean, you're the architect. Yeah. Six stories. So, yes, I, I, think, I, I think a very exciting is I think the mansion block is is something that phenomenal is a model that we should be re revisiting. And look at the prices they sell for now. Yeah, I mean they're incredible. But four stories, six stories, yes. even perhaps you know. Same a as setback. in Europe, Paris, Vienna. Yes, those heights with generous buildings. common entrance, common parts, lovely, yes. solidly built. I think that would be yes. And there's a history in in London of mansion yes. blocks. It's just I I see it every now and then some local authorities, that model seems to come forward, but I don't think it's done enough. Well, here you are, you've got to promote it. I and mean, the other thing about that is, you know, when we were young, we talked about volume. Do you remember you were shown a cube, and then, I don't know if you did this, and then you were shown four, four cubes or six cubes. You were shown how the surface area was, was much smaller for the same volume. Mm. But also, you know, they were, because when you put cubes together, you know, they're sharing walls. So yes. in terms of a building, it's far more energy efficient to be plugging those things together like that. Yeah. But also, if you don't, don't, if you keep it where people can go up, walk up the stairs instead of lifts, which True. they do in Vienna and places, and Paris, yeah. which limits the height, doesn't it? Probably to six. That's probably as far as anyone wants to walk up. Yes. Then you've got huge economies of scale. You've got huge economies of sort of energy efficiency. Yeah. And they're very safe and people love them. I mean, I just don't see, I don't, as, you know, as an ordinary person, I just don't see what the problem is. If I was running a planning department, I'd be signing off so many buildings, you know, no one would be able to speak. Just be signatures, <laughs> the paper would be burning, you know. No, I think mansion blocks is the way. Mansion it, blocks, it, it, we are all a, agreed. Yeah, it's a, it's a great typology and we should revisit that. And I agree with you on high rise living. I struggle a bit with that model. Tall, thin, very high. Yeah, can't see. Well, you've got to have a lot of air around it. And in fact, mm. mansion blocks can be built much closer together. And then you have shops and then you have the public domain. And then and that connection you know, talking to each other. And, la, 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 and you have a sensational city like Paris or Vienna or potentially parts of London. Yes. And actually, it uh, brings me to a question that I wanted to ask. Well, I read a report recently that the number one thing that people look for when they're buying a home is community and um Voila, which you don't get on top of a high-rise building no exactly and i think there is focus on i think the enlightened developers or the interesting developers have realized now that community is is so important and actually the, the schemes that, that that i see that are interesting are not just about the buildings that are being made but also they're trying to promote programs for the residents and to bring them together so I'm so excited, well, because I agree with you entirely. And I want to say two things. One, that this house we're in now was part of a, a small development of, uh, of empty houses. They've been empty for 10 years. And sort of 20 people, uh, or separate people, but uh, built them up together. And then this is almost like a village now. And everybody see. knows everybody. It's, it's fantastic. So they were derelict? Or? They were derelict for 10 years. This house was derelict for 10 years. Oh, and they so were going to be knocked down and we uh, fought to gain them back and so now it's a vibrant community and everybody mm. knows each other and it's benefiting That's local wonderful. shops. But I wanted to say in the modern terms, 
and I'm sure you, I know you build like that, but one recently, which is, I think is a fantastic model, is Marmalade Lane in oh, I don't uh, know that. Cambridge. Now, this is Cambridge, I agree, mm-hmm. but it's commuter, and it's a co-building project done by Mole Architects. Okay. And it's just won a, a major award, so I think it's worth mentioning. But there, the element of community was so important, and it was, as you understand how to do, and I know how difficult it is, stitched kind of into the mm. surrounding streets so that it plugged in instantly to the grid pattern that was there. Yes. And the residents, you know, they have allotments, they have land to grow, they do run their own laundry, that's co-building. But there is the problem of getting those things through planning because they're painfully slow. Yeah. But when you visit that, and I have visited that, and it, it rightly won the award, we so desperately need more of that. The joy it gives yeah. the residents is palpable. I don't know that. I, so, I will, I will have to... But there are more to... things like yeah. that in London, aren't there, going on slowly, co-building and... I think there is, yes, Co- co-living is another thing. Um, I think, well, you hear a lot about loneliness and that's becoming an increasingly concern that I, I, yeah, I think there are some developers doing some very interesting schemes where community is at the heart of what they do. But do as you would be done by, live as you would live. Who are these developers? Who are these people who impose on people what they wouldn't, dream of accepting themselves that would be a good litmus test to make the developer live for three years in his development or or her her development quite right philippa thank you very much for being my guests on our podcast i think we went on a on an epic journey no it was very exciting it was fun and all very enlightening as always i wanted to mention your book black lily and you, correct me if I'm wrong, but your book is currently up for an award and you can vote for Philippa's book at the People's Book Prize. That is so kind of you, Max, and that is true. It's been long listed for the People's Book Prize, uh, which you have to find online and vote, and please do. That would be lovely. I'm sure we will. <laughs> so you can find out more about Philippa and her books at the Pimpernel Press. But all I've now got to do is thank Philippa for being my guest. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Property and Architecture podcast from DeRose Saar. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more, or visit derosesaar.com forward slash podcast to find all of the episodes.